Welcome back to 10,000 No's. We are sporadically re-releasing some of our past episodes throughout the summer, and today's guest was one of the chosen ones. Because these episodes are older, please forgive any out-of-date references. These re-releases have been chosen because they are either some of our most heavily downloaded episodes, relevant to some current event, or just a conversation with someone we deem to be a badass that we felt should be reintroduced to our newer listeners so that their pearls of wisdom are not buried forever. Either way, we hope you enjoy. Here it is. But what he wanted is he wanted to kill me. And then he was, because he thought that this life was just not worth living. And so he wanted to rid me of any kind of pain because he was in so much pain and we were all going to be in pain. So he wanted to kill me and then he was going to kill himself and then have my mom kill herself. And then we'd all be joined together in another lifetime. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 Knows. I love today's conversation with actor Sarah Shahi. What's so cool about it and why it's being released right now before Thanksgiving is Sarah and I worked together last year on City on a Hill and we had a good time. She's funny and cool and you'd never guess that this woman ever had a problem in her life. But we all know by now, episode 118, to believe that would be a mistake. Everyone's been through the ringer in some way, shape or form. So I started following Sarah on Instagram and I saw an article that she posted from People Magazine that was all about the fact that her father was an addict and he was abusive, as you've already heard from the quote that started this episode. And she and her mom lived in and out of women's shelters throughout a period of her childhood. So I reached out to her, explained the show and why I thought her story would be a good fit. And she was cool enough to say yes. And the Thanksgiving connection is just this. I assume a lot of you will be listening to this maybe on your way to go visit family that you haven't seen in a while. You're going to eat and laugh and watch football. And it's easy to forget just how much we have to be thankful for. Food on the table, roof over our heads. And when you hear Sarah's story, hopefully you're in a safe situation. You're going to realize just how fortunate that is to be safe because she didn't have that for a large portion of her childhood. I'm going to cut to the chase so we can get right into it. You'll hear for yourself how honest and raw she is and funny. But if you're not familiar with her career, here are just a few of the highlights. Sarah has been all over the place on TV and film since her move to L.A. in 2000. You may know her from The L Word on Showtime, Life opposite Damian Lewis on NBC. She top-lined a show called Fairly Legal on USA for two seasons. She was a regular on Person of Interest on CBS. She was the lead of another show called Reverie before she did last summer's Showtime hit with Kevin Bacon, City on a Hill, where she played the tough but sensitive Rachel Benham. Or you may know her from The Sopranos. That is the role that put her on my radar so many years ago. She had an incredible episode. We get into the specifics of it later on in the conversation. We got a lot of good stuff in here, folks. Here she is, Sarah Shahi. You know, when I was a kid, there were, I had two, um, 
I had two, you know, burning desires uh, from the time that I can remember. One of them was me being on stage. I loved it. I loved being on stage. I loved being in front of people. I loved being something else. The first time I was on stage, it was uh, in second grade and I was an elf in a, in a school play. And I just thought that was like my shining moment. I was like, I was the best elf in the world. Um, And then, and then the other side of me wanted to be a doctor. I was unnaturally good at science classes and, um, and math classes and the idea of like human anatomy and surgery and all that stuff. Like it just, I just loved it. So it was either, it was always going to be one or the other. And really? obviously I picked the easier one. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. And yeah. how old did you think about being a doctor? I mean, up until the time that I was probably 16 or 17, it was okay. Acting just didn't seem like a, it didn't seem like a realistic path. You know, it's like being from Texas, going to the moon makes more sense than becoming an actress. So for the longest time, it was, yeah, it was, I, you know, acting was something that I loved. I was also in, um, um, like musical, like show choir. I always say I was like Rachel Berry, but less cunty. I always had the, I had the solos. I had, you know, um, I was a pageant kid as well. When you were how old? When I was, uh, I did it from the time that I was 10 until I was 18. Okay. I yeah. knew you did it in your teens. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I dug that up. Yeah. You research, dug that up. You saw that, huh? I, I wasn't able 10. to hide that. What was, what was that like at 10? Like, was that something that you asked your parents to do? No, or? it was actually something that my mom kind of pushed on me. Um, well, here's what happened. I had, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm Persian and I'm mixed with a few other things, but mostly Persian. And, and growing up in Texas, you know, if you weren't blonde hair, blue eyed with a name like Ann Smith, you just didn't have a lot of friends. So I didn't have a lot of friends. And I had this one friend, Jennifer Anderson. <laughs> and she was she was in pageants. And it was a way for me to sort of be friends with my friend and spend more time with her. And um, so she entered a pageant and my mom was like, well, what about you? You could enter a pageant and you'd learn about how to be on stage and have stage presence. And, and I was actually really nervous about it, but I was so desperate to have a friend that I said, okay, great, let's do it together. And, um, and I ended up winning and it was the end of our friendship. (laughs) (laughs) At age 10? At age 10. And now, you know, what do you do yeah. to win a pageant? Is I know it, it sounds is it so all, weird. No, no, no. But this is, is it, was it all external stuff that you couldn't control or did you have to do an essay? Or No, it was, a, so at 10, what they had is they did have a, there was a swimsuit contest and at, uh, 10? at 10, there's a swimsuit division. There was the evening gown uh, division. And then you had an interview, you had an onstage interview and, you know, it just depends on how you look at it. Right. I mean, I for me, the pageant was a very helpful exercise that definitely prepared me for what I was to do later. And it taught me to think quickly on my feet. It taught me how to answer questions. It taught me how to make really good eye contact and how to, you know, answer questions directly. Um, stage presence like it just it it I used it in a very healthy way. Like, you know, and at 10, like it wasn't like 
I was wearing a two piece either. You know, it was like, it was a one piece. My mother put no makeup on me. I still don't know how I won, but probably because I was the less made up of the kids. Like my mom had such a very sort of healthy outlook on it. She was like, you're 10, you don't need makeup, you know? So and maybe the the fact that you didn't have the coloring that everybody else had. Maybe. You know? Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, but um, yeah, so it was and I and I did that for and what it did for our family. So I grew up with a single mom. And when I won the pageants, it gave us a little money to take like a family vacation. So even though I enjoyed it, um, there was something that the family kind of benefited from it because then I would go to the next round and then that they paid for the next round. So like if it was a local contest and then I would go to like, you know, the state contest and then I would go to the national contest. So so you did national contests that early at, at, at age 10? Yes. Yes. The, the wow. pageant itself, it was called little, it was called uh, Miss Hemisphere. <laughs> <laughs> the prettiest girl in all the hemisphere. But, um, <laughs> So I, uh, so yeah, it was the, it was, so I won like, you know, the little, it was like the little miss, it was like the local hemisphere, <laughs> the local hemisphere. That sounds so strange. It <laughs> sounds so dumb, but, um, so yeah. And then, but I was able, but my family, my brother, my sister, my mother, myself, we were able to take, you know, just little trips. It was like, you know, South Padre Island. And then we went to Virginia and, you know, we just, it's it, that, that's the only vacations we took as a family. And, and what about, um, sports because did, did you play sports back I then? Did, because I know. I, yeah, I did play sports. I, 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 you know, I played a lot of sports. I did volleyball. I did basketball, cross country, swimming. I was a very athletic kid. I was much more, I was a tomboy. I was much more of a tomboy than I, I didn't really come into my femininity, even though I did these pageants and I put on these, you know, big ball gowns. It was not, you know, I, I, w- I was never a girly girl. You know, I didn't really discover myself in that way. I think until um, I became a cheerleader for the Cowboys and then your femininity is kind of thrown in your face at that point, or you have to throw it in other people's faces, I guess I should say. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I was, uh, you know, I'd, I'd rather wear dirt than makeup. I mean, even to this day, this is me dressed up for you. By yeah. The way. Like, I love it's it. Like, by the way, you know, you can't see Sarah, but she's got no makeup on <laughs> just like she's actually wearing a 10,000 nose hat now. Yee-hee, so she's going to be part of uh, the marketing campaign. That's right. But, um, yeah. And that's, and that's what, you know, when we met on city on a hill, your yeah. character, it was so. She's very done up. But, 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 but also her job, like very yes. gritty. Yes. Very her gritty. Her personality was yes. very gritty. Yes. You know, she yes. was I, like one of the guys. Definitely. Of. Yeah. I've um, always played characters that feel very, their energy is more masculine than feminine. I've always had that. Yeah. So tell me about that. How did, did uh, sports the pageants, mm-hmm. you said it prepared you in yeah. some way. Is it just the discipline of it? The, the- You know, yeah, th- there is a lot of discipline that is involved um, with doing pageants, actually. Like I had a pageant coach and uh, and he would grill me on, you know, on questions, whether it was political questions, whether it was sort of, you know, um, philosophical questions of, you know, being a teenager and what it's like growing up in love and relationships. And um, so... He had trained a lot of uh, former Miss Texas, Texases. Is that right? Texas, Miss Texases. Texai. Uh, Miss Texai. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so it, it was, it was, it was grueling and not grueling. That's the wrong word, but it was, there was a discipline involved. And then, you know, 
there are, and, and again, it's, it's an entertainment thing. It's a, you know, you put on a show. So just to be able to learn how to, whether it's to heighten your personality a little bit or to whatever it is, it's like, I learned it at such a young age. Yeah. And what about the split? You, so Iranian father, yeah. Spanish mother? Yeah, is she's that, half. Okay. Yeah. And was there uh, like in, in, in parenting style? Oh, they did not make was, for happy bedfellows at all. No. No, not at all. Um, <clears throat> so the story is, is my, if you've ever seen the, the easiest way to describe my parents, the beginning of Argo what that family escaping Iran, that was my parents' story, essentially. Um, My dad um, was on the hit list to be executed because he was a descendant of the Shah. So when Khomeini took over and the revolution happened in 7980, my father was on the hit list. My great-great-grandfather was one of the first Shahs of Iran. He and my mother were already married at the time. And my father was also working for the um, embassy, the U.S. embassy in Iran. So he was, he and my mom were kind of granted first permission to flee in the middle of the night. You know, they had to pack bags and, you know, they were given other identities and they fled. And um, and then they had me uh, in 80, a year after they came here. And um, my father, he was an addict before my mother even married him. He was a very dark man. You know, from the time that he was a kid, I'd heard stories about him constantly running away. Um, he started off with taking weight loss pills when he was pretty young. And then that just spiraled into a lot of other things. And, you know, as a dad, it's interesting. I've had such a, um, my relationship with my father has transitioned into so many different things. So when I was little, he was abusive. He, um, he never hit me, but he was abusive towards my mother. Um, he he held a gun to my head. That that was that's the one thing that I remember um, in terms of his abuse towards me. He was usually too high to really interact with me. But one of the times he was having a really bad trip, and my mom came home, and I kind of remember it. You know, I remember like I remember my dad was crying. He was holding me. I remember feeling the pressure, the pressure of something to my head. Um. But he was so sad. So, and I was scared because he was so sad. And I remember the pressure of this metal being pressed against my head and like wanting to escape that, just that pressure, like it hurt. But I was such a daddy's girl. Like I wanted so badly to get his love that I went, he was holding me. So it's like I wanted to be with him. But at the same time, I wanted to escape because there's this thing he was doing that didn't feel very good. And he was crying. And so I was, I didn't understand why he was crying. And I remember my mom coming home and um, her just being like she was I remember her. She was unnaturally calm, like there was this weird thing where she was calm and pleading at the same time. But what he wanted is he wanted to kill me. And then he was because he thought that this life was just not worth living. And so he wanted to rid me of any kind of pain because he was in so much pain and we were all going to be in pain. So he wanted to kill me and then he was going to kill himself and then have my mom kill herself. And then we'd all be joined together in another lifetime Oh my God! or in the afterlife. So, um, but you know, my mom is a superwoman and, um, you know, to this day, she's my biggest inspiration and I put her above everybody in my life because of what she went through. Um, and yeah, she was able to talk him out of it and, and 
you know, I don't remember the details of how he put the gun down and all that other stuff, but obviously he did. But I grew up in and out of women's shelters also when I was a kid um, because of him. And um, finally, by the time that I was eight was when it was the, I'll never forget. It was the day my mother went into the hospital to give birth to my sister. My dad took her and then he came back home and picked up my brother and me took us to the hospital. And then I didn't see him for almost a year. Like he just disappeared. And, um, yeah. And then we just didn't see him again for about a year or so. And then he was just very in and out, very in and out all due to, you know, drugs and alcohol. And when he died, I feel like I totally got off topic with you. Uh, no, with whatever it was. A- anything about. is on topic. But anyway, so when he died, um, I had to cut off contact with him because he was threatening to kill me a lot. We, I, I was in LA. I was, um, I came out in 2000. I, my first big job that I was making like serious cash on was, uh, the L word. And I was on the L word and I remember he wanted money. He wanted like 50 grand, 75 grand. And I knew what he wanted it for. And, you know, I tried so many times to get him clean, to get him help. And he did not want it. And, um, he was a truck driver. That was the only kind of job he could hold down. And I remember meeting him out on different, um, they're called TAs, the truck stops and, um, you know, trying to help him, you know, with his path. And he just clearly did not want it at all. And anyway, so he was threatening to kill me because I wouldn't give him the money. So I just got scared at one point and I changed my number and then I cut off contact with him. So, And when did he die? How he, old were you when he died? He died. My twins had just been born when he died. So he died four years ago and I hadn't spoken to him about in about 13 years. Okay. And so, and it was interesting, you know, when I went to the funeral, I, well, I put together the funeral. I had to bury, I had to do everything. He didn't have anybody, you know, he had no friends, he had no family, he had nobody, nobody um, took ownership of him, you know, in his death. And, and, but it was, you know, he, he made that decision, you know, his, his, the drugs and alcohol, that was, that was his first love. That was his family. And I hated him for a long time because of it. But now as I've gotten older, you know, it's like, in a way I use him a lot in my work. You know, he is my darkness. He is, uh, he is a part that really completes me, I think, as, as a person, as an artist, um, you know, it's like, I, I always had a knack kind of like you, anytime I'd get, to, I'd go to parties or I'd meet strangers. We'd, we'd start talking very intimately, very quickly, you know, very deeply. And people would tell me things that I never even asked, but yeah. they would just tell me. And I think maybe that was a gift that my father gave me was, you know, from a young age, I got burdened with so much so quickly. And that, side of me really kind of opened up. Um, so yeah, I don't know, but I've, now I'm in this place with my dad where I feel like I have more of a relationship with him now in his death than I did, you know, when he was yeah. alive. No, that makes sense. It makes sense to me. Yeah. Well, t- take me back. Cause I want to, I want to come back up to, you know, your adult years, but yeah. just where, where that came from was, you were saying your sister was born. Yeah. You were eight. I was eight. So I'm just trying to get timeline of this, which is 
you're eight years old. And when you were 10, you were doing pageants, but yeah. you also, when you're eight, you guys were living in and out of women's shelters. Now, yes. was that, what was your brother who was it 16 was, so also we were, with you? We were in and out of women's shelters probably before my, my brother didn't come over from Iran. My mom had to, cause when my parents fled, they had to leave him behind. So my brother didn't come over until later. He didn't come over until I was probably about seven ish. I would say it was right before my sister was born. But, um, but, and my mother and I, we spent, uh, about a year on and off in the women's shelters up until the time that I was about five or six. I, I remember it really well by five. I think by six, it was kind of So your done. dad was in and out even back then? Always, always. Okay. Okay. And then the, and then when he finally was kind of out, um, I mean, the longest period of time that I, I went without seeing him was when, when my sister was born, which is when I was eight. And then that was like almost a year. He was in Mexico. And I remember he came back with like, he just showed up at the doorstep one day and it, and he had like five trash bags full of like drugs that he had brought back with him. And then by the, and then when I was 10, they officially divorced. And then that was that. And then did you feel like you got stability at that point once they divorced? Like, was there a little bit more? Because it sounds like, you know, know, you're doing the pageants, you're doing well in sports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You did well in school as well? I did. I was, and you know, and again, I feel like it was all because of my mom. Like I, my mom, she's been, she's my angel. My mom, even though she was going through so much, she was one of those women that like, you know, again, I think it's another thing that's reflected like, in my work or why I get, you know, these women that are tough is my mom. She never let us see her cry. She never let us see her break. She was going through so much and, and she always had a smile, a smile on her face. And she just never, even though I felt like I was different from other kids, cause I didn't have a dad and a mom. I just had a mom. And I was the kid who was often, my mom was late picking me up from school. So it was well after the teachers were gone. Well, after all the kids had gone, I was still the only one left at the flagpole, you know, cause my mom had appointments and she had, you know, she had to make money. What and was so she doing for, for She work? was an interior designer. Okay. She was an interior designer. And so, yeah. So it was like, I constantly felt like the odd man out, but But in our home, I didn't feel like that because, again, my mom, she went above and beyond to make us feel like we were normal to anything we wanted. She was able to get for us. She encouraged us. She taught me from such a young age. She's like, there's no difference between you and the person sitting next to you. You know, she's like, you work hard. You're smart. You're this. You will get anything that you want. And she came she came from a tough uh childhood herself. She came from a family of seven children in Iran. Um, you know, girls were not encouraged to go to school, but she was so smart. Not only did, did she go to school, but she went to college when she was 15. And that was not something that women did back then, you know? Yeah. So that was my mom. So she's a special She woman. was very special, yeah. you know? And because she always had a very thick accent, people had, would want to take advantage of her because of the accent thing she didn't understand. But then it was like, oh, watch out. I mean, when they say, you know, the, the tiger bomb thing or, you know, it's like the claws would come out and, yeah. you know, you would rue the day that you were born because this woman would turn around and get you if you ever tried anything on her. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that, that's my mom. Pardon the interruption. I want to thank you for listening and to remind you that now you can also support the show at our online store. Just go to 10,000nose.com and click on the store link to see what we have. High quality trucker hats and t-shirts. All proceeds go toward the podcast. If you're a regular listener, you may have noticed we do not use sponsors. This content is free and self-funded. 
Instead, we designed our own apparel so that you can look good while helping the cause at the same time. They make great holiday gifts too, I'm just saying. So, 10,000knows.com slash store. That link will be in the episode show notes as well. Go check it out. Now, back to Sarah. Yeah, my real name is Ahu Jahansu Shahi. And you can only imagine growing up in Texas. Yeah. I mean, people are like, excuse me, you know, like, is that a disease? Is that a, <laughs> you know, is that a side order to some Japanese dish? I don't know about like, it was just like, <laughs> it was just the most unnatural thing that could come out of my mouth was my name. And so I just, and I got ridiculed. I got made fun of so much. And how long did you have it until? Until when I was in second grade. Um, it was right after my sister was born, actually. I just got tired of being made fun of. And um, so I told my mom I wanted to change my name. And I actually wanted to be, I don't know if you remember, there was a show called Small Wonder where there was a little kid who was a robot. I remember that. I didn't have watch like, it, but I remember. Yeah, yeah. And her name was Vicky. And so I wanted to be Vicky. And my mom was like, you're not a Vicky. And that song by Jefferson Starship Sarah, Sarah, that was on the radio as we were having this discussion. And she was like, well, what about Sarah? And I was like, fine, I'll take it. I mean, if come on Eileen, and she was like, how about Eileen? I'd be like, great. And I'd be Eileen Shahi. And then just for the sake of pageants, Jahansu Shahi was so difficult. We're like, okay, what's the easiest part of that name? Okay, Shahi. Okay, let's just have Shahi. So then I became Sarah Shahi. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. I mean, you yeah. know, the things you get to find out. I know, I know, it's true. Yeah. You studied opera? Yeah, I did. Um, I did it for about, you know, six years. Um, it, it was part of the whole choir thing. And uh, we had, we had, I had, I was blessed with a couple really amazing um, choir directors and um, they were all classically trained. And so we all became classically trained and, and, yeah, it was really, it was, it, yeah, it was great. From I, what age? From from the time, let's see, how old was I? I think it was about 12. I started when I was about 12, um, singing in foreign languages and just really sort of developing that part of my, my breath and you're singing from your abdomen and all that stuff. Um, and I did it until I was about 18. It's amazing. I, as yeah. I'm sitting here with you, I'm thinking, God, you must have been a busy kid because you also did well in sports. I, you, also, I, I mean, you yeah. Must- and and my mom always told me that if I wanted more, like I I wanted more than my town. You know, I you know I just I wanted more, and um, I uh, I was attracted to things that the town couldn't give me. And so she would always tell me that if you want out, she's like, I don't have money. You have to get a scholarship. You have to this. So it was like, I was the very typical middle child. I was an overachiever. I was very ambitious, you know, a Capricorn, you know, it's like, and my, and my mom, she put a lot of pressure on me that if I wanted more, I had to, I had to give it to myself. She couldn't do it for me. Yeah. The thing that I had read, which, uh, that you were a captain of your volleyball team in high school, (laughs) which I was like, really? I was like, volleyball? I couldn't spike a ball to save my life right now. You must have some ups. I I know, right? I was a great setter. I was a great fucking setter. (laughs) And, um, and yeah, you know, it's like, I, yeah, I was very, I was very athletic. And even now, even though I haven't played, I haven't done anything in so long. Um, you know, I could, if, if I, if I had a ball, I could, I could do something. I could do something with it. My daughter is just starting to play now. Oh, is she? Yeah. Yeah. Literally just like, hasn't even really started. I I don't have, like, 
I'm not too tall, you know, it's like I, I'm not I don't call myself short. I call myself fun size and fun size. <laughs> Damien Lewis actually gave me that nickname um, when we were doing life together because I said something about it. I was like, oh, and I'm sh- too short. He's like, you're not short. You're fun size. And I was like, oh, I like that. That's hysterical. But um, but I was a really good setter. I had, a, you know. And I, I could, I could, I could spike a ball. And, and and did you also? So did you go to one of those Texas schools that was like a Friday Night Lights kind of place with a huge 100%, football program? Yes. Were you yes. a cheerleader then? No, no. I no, I hated cheerleaders because they were just you know they were popular and I was, I always wanted to be popular, but I had a unibrow and everyone knew my name was Ahu Jahansu Shahi, you know, and it was just like they called me Sarah J. I was Sarah J. And. Um, and so, no, I kind of like resented cheerleaders actually, well, but I did I go to a big. Like how, so, so, okay. So this is what I want to get to. Yeah. You, you won beauty contest. Yeah. Uh, you placed first in, in Miss Fort Worth USA yeah. in 1997. <laughs> <laughs> and then how oh did you God, transition? Is, oh. You went to SMU. I did. Okay. Yes. How'd you transition to all Cheerleading of a sudden? And-, and so did you not finish school? Was that- I did not. No, I dropped out. So tell us about. The, that part of my life okay into Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders I mean it's like anybody in the world knows Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders yeah. you were I, I love this I, yeah. I felt like I'm like swimsuit calendar cover girl <laughs> in 2000. <laughs> this is so awesome when oh, I found this, this out horrible. I'm like, oh my god this is gonna be what's so funny much is if you look up the pictures from that because they're online the calendar's online it's all online like you're like that's you like I don't look like I don't look anything like it like you should look it up um um <laughs> Yeah. So, okay. So here's what happened. I, I, I went to SMU and, um, I thought it was going to be, I thought, you know, again, like not knowing that I could do acting for a living, like it was just like not a reality to me, but having been Miss Fort Worth, I got to like tell the news, like the five o'clock news one day. And I was like, Oh, I really like this. Maybe I'll be a journalist. So I didn't know what to major in, but I was like, all right, so you have to, you know, start off in some kind of direction, right? And so I was like, all right, I, I'll be an English major. So, by the I, way, I'm an English major. Oh, you and are? It was the same thing. It was totally <laughs> by default. Yeah. Exactly. Totally. I was like, I like to read, you know, I can kind of write. I guess I'll just be an English major. And um, it sounds really, you know, intellectual. And, <laughs> and so I started off in that path and, and I, was okay. So I was in a musical, uh, not at SMU, but it was like associated with the school. I was in a production of Chicago. I played six in Chicago. And one of the girls that was one of the background dancers, everyone knew I wanted to be an actress. And I was always the kid that, you know, got the most lines in the play or got you like, it was always, I was always that person. And so She was like, well, why don't you try out for the Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders? Because back in 1995, they were on Saturday Night Live. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, then that's my way. <laughs> what a crazy, you know. Yeah, I know, right? What you, a crazy really association. Like that, I know. Like, it's like, what? I'll do this. I know. Yeah. Exactly. So I tried out. And again, I had never been a cheerleader. Um and in, in their tryouts, like over 500 girls go, you know, they make the business of Hollywood look like child's play. These girls can be very conniving and vindictive towards each other and very competitive. And, and um, you know, in Texas, it's the biggest honor you can get, so to speak, you know, is to be a Dallas Cupboard cheerleader. And, and um, I wanted it as a stepping stone. I didn't really care too much. So... But they had a singing division and I knew that I could sing, you know, good enough. Um, 
to, to, to ace that part of it. And I knew I had stage presence and, uh, you know, okay, let's do it. So I tried out and I made the team. And uh, Robert Altman came to Texas to film Dr. T and the women. And I had no clue who he was. He used, he used our rehearsal facilities for about two weeks because in the movie, Liv Tyler and Kate Hudson were both Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. And we were like the background. So, um, again, I had no idea who he was, but for whatever reason, he took a big liking to me. And I sat with him every day at Video Village, right next to him in his director's chair. I had a chair. And... The other cheerleaders, like I was getting nasty looks from all the girls because we were specifically told not to fraternize with them, specifically told to stay away. And I was like, you know, fuck that. Like I there's an opportunity for me here somewhere. Right. So but yeah. And and he it was his second to last week. And we never talked about the business, by the way. Like we talked about his nephew was going to MIT at the time. We talked about our families. We talked about the cheerleaders. We talked about football, but we never talked about acting. And it was the second to last day that he was there. And he said, what is it that you want to do? I said, well, I, I want to be an actor. I just don't know how to do it out here. And he said, well, I think you have something. I think you have what it takes. You should move to LA. So I went home that night and I Googled him. Yeah. I was going to say, when Robert Altman says you have what it takes, that's kind right. of a good sign. So I was like... Okay, so I, again, you know, I didn't know who he was, so I Googled him. And of all the movies that he had done, the only thing that I recognized was Popeye. I was like, Ma. <laughs> That's great. I was like, the guy who did Popeye is telling me I got a shot. So um, I went on the USO tour with the cheerleaders, which was amazing. I went to Bosnia, Kosovo, Macedonia, and Italy and performed for the troops. And, uh, then, and you're like 19 or 20 at this point. Yeah, I was 19. And then, um, when I came back, I quit, I quit everything. I quit the cheerleaders. I quit school. I had a cherry red pickup truck and yeah, packed up my car and, um, my mom and I, we drove to California and then I never looked back. She came with you. She came with me to drop me off. Yeah. And did your sister stay back in Texas? My sister stayed back in, in LA my brother was oh, in the army. Back in LA. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My sister was back in Texas. Back in yes. Texas. My okay. sister was back in Texas. My brother was in the military and, uh, yeah. And this was going to be my new path. And it was funny because I ended up, uh, I didn't know where to start and I wasn't nervous because I was so excited. I was so determined. I, I didn't know that there was a I didn't think anybody would ever tell me no, you know, and I like you, I have heard a million no's, you know, if I had something it would be called a million no's, but, um, I was just, I was like, yeah, it's going to work out because there's no, people would ask, what's your plan B? I'm like, plan B, what is a plan B? There's no such thing as a plan B. I'm going to do this. And I opened up the backstage West and I kind of closed my eyes. I didn't know where to start. And I closed my eyes and I kind of moved my finger all around the pages until I found, until I landed on something. And it was an acting coach named Gino Havens. He, he had a lot of health issues. He might've even passed since then, but he was this, you know, he was this man that had an acting coach, um, out of his apartment. And I started going, um, by the end of that week, he was like, I want to set you up with a manager. I was like, okay. So he set me up with a manager. I started going out on my, on auditions and 
the first audition I went out on, I was so green. It was actually a producer session. And there were all these um, like hors d'oeuvres, like everything for the producers out in the back of the room. I thought they were for the actors, <laughs> you know, because in Texas, you know, you put food out for guests. So I thought, oh, OK, well, I'm a guest right. and this is food for me. So I immediately go in the back. I start making myself a plate of food. And everyone's looking at me like, who the fuck is this girl? They're like, how long have you been in town? I'm like, oh, since Tuesday. <laughs> and they're like, have you acted before? I'm like, no, this is my first time. How are y'all doing? You know? <laughs> and they're like, oh my God. And you know, how did you come to acting? I'm like, well, Robert Altman told me he thought I'd have a shot. So they're just <laughs> looking at me like, who is this like one-eyed unicorn that You're just like, walked you know, in? Robert Altman, the guy that did Popeye. The guy that did Popeye. <laughs> you know him, Robin Williams? So anyway, so, and it was a disaster of an audition because I didn't know what I was doing. But, um, but for a few months, you know, and, 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 and Bob, can I call him Bob? I don't know. Robert Altman and I, we, we were playing phone tap because he gave me his home. He gave me a cell number and his office number. And he said, when you go out to LA, call me, I want to help you. So as I'm in LA, I'm playing phone tag with him because he's still back in Texas filming. But with every audition I go out on, I tell the story. People are just, you know, they're like, do you know who he is? And they'd start giving me this education on who Robert Altman is and how he's the godfather of film and go watch this movie and go read this book and go do that. So by the time he called me back last, I'll never forget. It was around, I think, March or April. And I just felt so intimidated. I just was like, oh my gosh, this man that I conversed with so easily once upon a time, he like, he, he's the godfather of film. Like, what do I say? I'm not good enough to talk to him. And so, did you eject out of that com- that that? I did. I did. I, I, I'm the one who pulled away from that. And then, and then he died a few months later. So he died in what, 2006? I don't, re- I, I don't remember. I felt like it was pretty early on after I got I'll lo- here. I'll, yeah. I'll yeah. I don't, I don't know. It, I, I'll put it in the show notes for people to yeah, see. Yeah. 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 I'm know? not, I'm not sure exactly when he, I, I always say a few months cause that's what it felt like that he died sh- shortly after, whether it was within a year or so, but either way, I just felt, I felt, I just felt like I was not good enough to have conversations with him based on what I had learned about him. And so, yeah, so I never called him back and then, you know, then he passed and, I, I believe it was before 2006, though. Yeah, okay. I, I, I do think it was before 2006. Yeah. Maybe within the first I, year. It was early 2000. I can't I remember. I feel like it was yeah. early 2000. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, that was, uh, that's how I came to be. It's, yeah, that's amazing. And then, and then you started, uh, you know, recurred on Alias. Alias, uh, yeah. Alias was my, my first kind of big breakout role. You um, did a pilot in 2000, oh in 2002. You went back, of, didn't you? Class of, uh, class of 06. Was that's, that a pilot? Like, were you a that regular? Was a pi- yeah, that up? was a pilot. It was actually me and Kevin Hart. And Kevin and I became really good friends. And, um, and a lot of people are shocked to find out. Like, I remember when my oldest son found out that I was friends with Kevin, he was going through my phone one day and he was like, Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart. And I was like, that Kevin Hart? I, yeah, I was like, yeah, Kevin Hart. <laughs> He's like, prove it. And I was like, okay. Was That's like, great. Can you call my kid? And it just was a pilot so, that didn't go. It was a pilot that did not go um, for NBC. And uh, it was supposed to be, you know, it was from like the the people who wrote Friends. And it was supposed to be like a younger Friends. And yeah, yeah it's it, it what was a, embarrassing. What about old school? Uh, old I don't school. Know if I, what, what did you, I mean, I saw old school. Yeah. Obviously everybody did, but I, I, I don't know. I know, if, if I, you what, blink. And I don't even look the same anymore, you know. Um was what it was something I? that that moved the needle for you? Because it was a huge movie, or it, was a, it did didn't you feel really like... move the needle too much. What did move the needle for me? I mean, I'll tell you when I first 
became aware. I feel like of nothing has moved the needle. No, no. This is a, for, for me. I'm still waiting for something to move that goddamn needle. <laughs> this is why I love. It's such a fucking long needle. Show, Fuck. like you hearing you say that, and I, I hope young actors listen to yeah. this because they realize that like it doesn't. It you never graduate. I would look I at know. you and think, how could you say I that? Constantly but I constantly feel. It. I constantly feel like I'm at the very beginning of my Same. education. I get for with every job I get, I feel like this could be my last. I I am just as nervous doing a job now as I. I was when I first started. And you know what? I just love that. I love it because it drives me, yeah. you know? So it's like, I wouldn't have it any other way. If I don't get nervous and I don't get excited, then why do it? Yeah. I mean, you and, know? and I want to get to what I first saw when I, you, I first became aware of you, but I want to also mention, you know, we talked to, before we started rolling, you said, I'm so sorry, we've had to reschedule. Yeah. But young actors should hear this. One of the reschedules was you're like, oh, I've got something on Friday. It's like, 12 yeah. pages of sides and I'm yeah. preparing for this audition on Friday. Yeah. And, and people, I, I don't know what it is, but people think like, well, no, she's not auditioning anymore. Oh You're God. Like, like, I feel like, like that's like all every, I do. It, I, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's just like, I just, I just feel like the hustle never ends in this business, you no. know? And it's like, and I still can't fathom myself doing anything, but, you know, I'm so attracted to the 900 different personalities that are inside my head that I, I'm, you know, want to explore each one. But um, yeah, I had a huge audition. And, and the reason it was so last minute is because they didn't want to see me. They didn't want to see me because they didn't think I was right. They were like, she's not really what we were looking for. But, you know, my, my reps really pushed to get me in the room. And so they were like, okay, fine. So How'd it, it go? It, it, I, I think I should get the job. It, I, I am so <laughs> like, whether this is good or bad, I walk out of every audition going fucking nailed it, <laughs> booked it. You're getting the offer. And no, hasn't happened. Yeah. <laughs> Has not happened. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so I, I think it went great, but anyway, whatever, who cares? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And people, I like that people can hear that, but let me just tell you the one I remember on Sopranos. Yeah. Sopranos. That yeah. was a great episode. That was a great you, episode. It was like a short film. It really I mean, was. Basically it, he it, went to Vegas. It was. was it? Yeah. The, Tony goes to Vegas. He hangs with you the whole time. Yeah. You do drugs yeah. Together, it was the episode right? that, that, you know, Chris, Christopher dies in that episode. So that was a big episode. Alan Taylor, directed it. Uh, it won, you know, a bunch of that particular episode won a lot that year. It got a lot of attention and yeah, it's mostly Tony and I, you know, for a good part of the episode. And, but you know, that just goes to show you too. It's like, man, I don't know why things work out sometimes for some people and then they don't work out and other times for other things. Like, I don't know why that, why I was there that particular, you know, I auditioned, I was doing a, movie at the time with Zach Levi. I was doing this little indie with Zach Levi. And I go into audition. They couldn't cast it. They wanted to cast it out of New York. They couldn't find the girl that they felt could match Tony's energy. So they open it up to LA. They're like, can you read for this? I said, okay. So I had my girlfriend put me on tape and I improved a little thing at the end. And they were like, they love it, but David Chase wants you to do it again and lose the improv. I was like, you know what? No, I'm fucking shooting a thing right now. I can just as easily not say it. I'm not, I did everything else right. So I'm not, no, I can just not say that part. Like I'm not putting myself back on tape for that. I'm not jumping through that hoop. And, and next thing I know, I am, I got the job. But, yeah. but that episode for me, that one episode, it's like I've, I've done so many TV shows, right? I've done so many TV shows, knock on wood. 
that one episode did more for me than like all of my TV shows combined. Yeah. Like it's just crazy. Well, that's why I, you know, as, as I'm, you know, you see this, this people that are listening can't see this, but I have all these notes of all these things you've done. Right. But as I'm going through it now, I worked with you. So I hung with you. Yeah. Right. But as I'm going through it, I'm thinking, when did I first know her? Oh, Sopranos. And yeah. I remember, I mean, I remember it. It was such a great role. It was such a great episode. I was on Sopranos yeah. myself. So yeah. I kind of had watched. You were you know, paying I don't know attention. Season, yeah. I don't know what season. It was season six. It was, was season six. So six I did mostly season. season four was the majority of my okay. stuff. So, but you were like, it, it was, you talk about moving the needle. Yeah. Now I go and I look up and and I, I thought, God, Actors like we think everybody knows everything we've done. Meanwhile, you've done you've been the lead on series. You've done all this stuff. I knew you were on the L word, but yeah. I never really watched it. Sure, you know, um, I knew you had your own. My husband show. was dying for me to bring my work home with me when I was on that. He was like, "Honey, if you ever want to practice anything, uh, that's hysterical." Yeah, no, but I knew you had. I remember I used to see uh, you had a billboard for the fairly, fairly legal. legal. Yeah. You know, but I don't think I saw it. Yeah. You no. know, so it's interesting how one thing could. Yeah. Could could pop or or somebody could know you from this one sliver of your work. And yeah. Not know everything it's else. True. It's true. Um. So as you as you go on, like what, you know, you've been you work constantly. You uh, your mindset, you yeah. said. You go in there, you come out and you're like, I nailed it. Is that what it is that you think might be your, your superpower? Is that positive? You know, here's what I, I don't know if my positivity is my superpower because I have plenty of times where I don't feel very positive and, you know, and I do get really down, but in terms of just auditioning and this business, um, if I go in and do what I wanted to do, what I, you know, I, I look at, I look at a, a role and I often think, what, what is it that makes me unique and what can I bring to this? Right. Because, you know, obviously whoever wrote it has their interpretation of this character. And if I'm going to play this character, I'm going to color it in a I'm going to add my own colors to it. So I try to, I take every audition as if it's a job and I go in prepared to basically film it, you know, and I really, and I, and I, I, for me, I feel like acting is, I don't like jazz music, but I once heard Thelonious Monk say something about jazz music. And I was like, and I, to me, I was like, oh my God, that's what acting is. You know, he said it's jazz is the space in between the notes. I think acting is the space in between the lines. The lines are secondary. I feel like it's constantly, you know, it's that, it's that moment before it's that thought before that inspires the line. The line doesn't mean anything. It's what happens in between. It's the silence, you know? And I feel like a lot of times with actors, we don't, we speak because it's our turn to speak, not because we're listening and we're letting something affect us. And, you know, and then we speak, you know, like I, you know, sometimes my husband 
we, we talk about acting and we talk about our scenes or whatever. And, and, you know, it's something that I find myself just sort of saying to all my acting friends, it's like, don't, don't talk just because it's your turn to talk, like do something with this moment, you know, find it funny or think about it or let it be confusing or make it, let it make you angry or let it remind you of something, you know, like, or, 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 or try to figure out what you're saying in the line. You know what I mean? Just like do something with it. And so, so I spend a lot of time just studying that part of my audition material. What can I bring that's going to be different? You know, how would I do this role? And if I do that, then I consider it to be a successful audition. And, you know, and I am just that naive or egotistical enough to believe that I should get everything I audition for. <laughs> and so, and when it doesn't happen, I'm always so shocked. But, um, but I'm like, what? Um, what do you mean they went with an African-American? I can be that, you know, it's just like, so, um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's such a thing. And now I'm at that point where, you know, doing city on a hill, I, for me doing on doing city on a hill was a big, uh, departure for me because I had a very successful and sort of lucrative world in the network TV stage for a long time. Um, you know, I, I was at a point where I could, I could get a pilot made, uh, you know, I could headline something and, but I was, the stories were not inspiring me and it was really letting me down. And, um, I just was having a hard time creatively in that, in that atmosphere. So I turned, I, I didn't work after Reverie got canceled. I didn't work. Um, cause I just, I didn't want anything that was given my way. And then I got an audition for sitting on a hill and, you know, it was a very high profile project. They had already shot the pilot. They were looking to add a character and, uh, the audition was like a two page monologue and, um, I was like, you know, okay, you know, let's, I, I, at that point I just lost out on a big Nicole Kidman movie. It was between me and this other actress. And that, you know, that happens to me all the time, by the way, I'm constantly the number two to the, the big films. And so I was, I felt really dejected and I almost felt like I had nothing to lose, which, you know, it's, it's that great place, right? Detachment, you know, spirituality always talks about, you know, you can manifest, you can have your intentions out there, but then you have to, but then to be detached, you know, um, so I just had a great sense of detachment and I did what I thought was a Boston accent, which was not a Boston accent. It was like a really bad, like New York, like Jersey accent probably. And, um, and I did what I guess they felt like worked. Um, but it was, it was really hard for me to take the job because, you know, it was the, 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 the pay was very low. The, it was, it was a little bit better than a guest starring role. I'll tell you that much, like in terms of my pay for that show, I really had to negotiate to get something that would even get my rent paid for in New York. That's how low it was. And for me making, you know, a lot of money. And then now I'm basically, I'm basically paying now to be on the show. Right. And, you know, I have three kids, you know, I have a, my home is in LA. I have to move myself to New York, but I really wanted to be a part of that storytelling but it was a big uh, challenge for me and my family to take that job. Yeah. 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 And since then, you know, it's like I've gotten great feedback from the show. Um, you know, 
has it changed my life? No, it didn't change my life. It, it, it's, it's helped people see me differently, which is great. So could that change my life? Could that parlay into something? I hope so. I think it will. I think it will. I mean, and I, you know, when we're done recording, I can tell you my own version of that. Yeah. Uh, people don't need to hear it right now, but, um, yeah, I think anytime you take a, a risk like that or, or veer from the normal path that you've been on, you, I believe you get rewarded in, in some way. And it doesn't always, it doesn't, it doesn't always come back in the way that we think we want it to or, sure. or in the time it's, or in the time we wanted to you know sometimes yeah it's, i mean you know well all i know here's the thing it's like i've had a lot of shit happen to me right i've had a lot of shit happen in my childhood my husband and i we've tried to divorce each other probably about three to four times like we <laughs> i'm married i'm married to steve howie he's an actor a lot of people know him from Sh- uh, shameless and and reba and And, you know, it's like we have our shit in our relationship and now, you know, we look at each other and we laugh at it. We live in two separate houses. You know, it's like I was talking to a friend the other day and they're like, the key to a successful marriage is, you know, different bathrooms. I'm like, fuck that. It's separate houses. (laughs) And so and and we laugh at it now. So we've we've been with each other for almost 20 years. You know, it's like we've really come up with each other through this business and also through ourselves, just aging, you know, and, and coming into our own. We were kids when we met, you know? Yeah. And so, so, um, um, what I, what I, what I know now more than ever is it's like, I, A, I'm not afraid to say I know nothing. I know fucking nothing. And also that I have to go with my heart. So when I go with my heart, I never regret the decisions that I've made even if it didn't work out the way I wanted it to. When I try to go with my mind or I try to go with something that might be good for my career, so to speak, and it doesn't work out the way I want it to, I regret it. Yeah. So it's like, if anything, that's all I know. Just go with your heart, you know? And just when you do that, it's like, then you always succeed no matter what. That's beautiful. Parenting. Yeah. I mean, that's a big can of worms. We're not going to go way down that, that into that rabbit hole. How do you do that? I how didn't do I know do you that? guys were in separate yeah. houses and it's how hard. does that work? It's hard. Here, you know, it's parenting is interesting, right? It's the 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 my children, I feel like I feel like the biggest mark I will leave is my children. Um I would, you know, I'd love to start a charity. I'd love to start a literacy charity and then and then I hope that will be another mark that I can leave. But so I take parenting, you know, I, I'm this and I'm the soccer mom and I try really hard to do both. And when I have to be on location for the most part, I always take my kids with me and, you know, kids, I feel like they're very adaptable. They can, they, and, you know, and my children in a way they've grown up on the sets, my, my oldest, since I've had him for 10 years, he, he came with me when I was on person of interest and he stayed and he came to set and, you know, and and he's very comfortable on sets. The twins, they came when I was doing Reverie out here. They're only four. They didn't come out to New York. But um, I just believe in exposing them to what we do. I I believe and I believe it's good to show them that if you follow your heart, you can succeed. I believe it's good to show them, you know, that you can work. And and 
look, I mean, like you, you know, I sometimes I feel like I'm acing it. And sometimes I feel like I'm failing it. And I feel like I'm giving my children so many issues, you know, and and but I try to really I try to talk to them. I, I, I believe in a lot of communication. I you know, my son is 10. He's going through a lot of, you know, it's like I can see the early teen thing kind of happening with him. And he gets very frustrated with his twin brother and sister. And you know, he, he likes to intimidate them sometimes. How much younger are the twins? They're six years younger. Six years younger. Okay. Yeah. He's 10, they're four. Okay. And so, and just, you know, this weekend we had a thing where I was like, all right, you know, he, you know, cause they'll get into screaming batches, batches. I'm like, okay, next time you have those feelings, he's like, mom, I get so angry. Sometimes I'm so frustrated. I don't know what to do. I go, okay. Next time you start feeling those feelings, I go, instead of lashing out, I go, cause those are totally normal feelings. That's the other thing is anytime they express something to me, no matter how dark it is, I always tell them that's totally normal. Thank you for sharing that with me. Like I believe, cause I believe that no matter who you are in this world or what walk of life you come from, the one thing we all have in common, we all want to feel heard. We all want to feel acknowledged. We all want to feel loved to some degree or another. So no matter what it is my children are expressing to me, I always thank them for their honesty. And I always say that's totally normal. And then I'm like, okay, so here's what needs to happen. I'm like, all right, next time you feel those feelings, let's take, I want you to tell me, I will drop everything that I'm doing. Instead of you lashing out at your brother, come to me. I go, I want you to put your hands on my shoulder. Say, mom, I'm feeling those feelings again. I'm like, okay, I'm going to put my hands on your shoulder and we're going to take like four really big breaths. I go, and then we're going to just like be kind of quiet and we're going to close our eyes for a second. And then we're going to start talking about it. And it happened yesterday. He was like, mom, I'm having those feelings. And I was in the kitchen cooking. I go, okay. I gave their twins their iPads for a little bit. I'm like, all right, we went outside and we did just that and it helped and it helped alleviate it. So- I don't know if that's good. I don't know if that's bad, but it seemed like it worked, Yeah, you know? And so, so I don't know, but yeah, you, you do feel, you know, you, it's that balance. Right. And I try to get all my shit done before five. So at five, I can at least be home and like prepare dinner. And when they have important things at school that I can't miss, whatever production I'm working on, I just say, look, I just want you to know, my kid has this, I ha it happened on city on a hill. I was like, my kid has a performance. I'm not missing it. I'm going back for this performance and, you know, and they make it work. And that's the thing too, right? Is it's like, I read this great book. It was the, uh, uh, Shonda Rhimes book. It was the year of yes. And she talked about how, you know, she's a workhorse, you know, she's, she's a force of nature, that woman. And she just spent entire year saying yes to things. Yes to her children's stuff. Yes to any things she got asked to do. Um, and because those moments that our children come to us, they're so fleeting. And I tell my husband this sometimes, right? Um, God bless you. I love men. Okay. I love food and men in that order. And, and, but you men sometimes need a little nudging from your, from your other halves. And I tell him like, he's coming to you for those small things. If you don't pay attention with those small things, when the big things happen, he's not going to come to you. Yeah. So it's like, make those small things big in your world because they're big in his world, you know? So it's like, I am there for every, for every major thing. I am there. When we were on city on a hill, I was in New York. I would, I would Skype for homework. He, he'd put the phone down. I would do homework with him. You know, I would be there for the twins. I would, you know, it's like, you just try to be two places at once as most as you can. And, yeah. you know, I will say as an actress, my life, my acting did not 
had never been, you know, richer until I had kids, Agreed. you know, cause it's just the most love, the most joy, the most fear, the most pain, the most anger. My kids can. Yeah. There's a vulnerability when you have someone out there who is dependent on you. And I think it, it bleeds into the work in, yeah. a, in a, in a great way. And also I think it makes the, for me, I'll say my relationship to the business is very different than it was 20 years ago when I just was like, this is what I want. Now I'm like, yeah, I want that. But that's, I do want that. Right. You know, I'm very ambitious yet. It's got a different place in my life. Now. Right. It's got a different priority. And look, I came from a mother who worked. I came from a mother who worked her ass off. You know, there were, there were times when I was a kid, she was, she was an interior decorator and she made everything by hand. She'd make her drapes, she'd reupholster the fabric, she'd everything. She worked so hard. There were times where we couldn't go home, especially during like the Christmas seasons where everyone had to redo their house and she got really busy. We would sleep underneath her work table at her work. We would be, we'd, you know, our dinners were cottage cheese and tuna fish and we would sleep because she just didn't have the time to take us back home, shower, all that stuff. So it's like, I grew up with, with a woman who worked really hard and she had a smile on her face when she did it. Cause she liked what she did. Yeah. And I love showing that to my kids. The word no. Yeah. Means what to you? How would you define it? Uh, the word no means something better is around the corner. If you could give your younger self advice, what age would you intervene and what would the advice be? Mm. Uh, I think it would be at age eight. I remember that's when my life, I felt like my life kind of turned, like I stopped being a kid. And I really grew up. And the thing that I would tell myself, uh, laugh more. I tell myself to laugh more. I feel like, you know, depending on what your beliefs are, you know, it's like we've got we've got this lifetime. This lifetime is exactly what we make it. This life is a game. The good, the bad, the boring, the up, the down, the sideways. And it all what this lifetime is, is a, is a, it, it, it is a definition of our perception. Everybody's going through shit. Everyone's got something, you know, I'm not going to judge someone's hardships or sins against my own hardships or sins. That's not my place. I'm not going to judge, but I will say that everybody has something, but the difference is, is whether or not you can laugh at it. That is awesome. Yeah. I'm going to let you go. <laughs> Sarah Shahi, I mean, uh, you're, you're blowing my mind here. I'm oh, getting man. out in under oh, an hour. Man. I know you got the family to go back to. Uh, oh. th- I can't thank you enough for sitting down oh, with me. Oh, thank you for having me. So I love this. I you. love this. I love this. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Oh, I do too. Thank you for having me. What we do here is go back, 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 back. All right. Wow. I'm inspired. I hope you are. Um, Okay. Hard to narrow this down, but top three takeaways. Here we go. Number one, why networking should never feel, quote, networky. And we never talked about the business, by the way. Like we talked about his nephew was going to MIT at the time. We talked about our families. We talked about the cheerleaders, talked about football, but we never talked about acting. 
Now, I get this question a lot from young actors, and I think it's worth making a point on this to help you. Yes, Sarah put herself in the path of Robert Altman. Even though she didn't realize yet how powerful he was, she still knew he was the director. Yes, she did it against the orders of her superiors who told them no fraternizing with the film crew. But did she go up to Altman and hand him a headshot and resume? No. That wouldn't have worked, regardless of how attractive or charming she may have been. Instead, she was cool. She was interested in what was happening. She asked questions and actually listened to the answers. Did anyone else pick up on the attention to detail she still retains now, almost 20 years later, that Altman's nephew went to MIT? That means she was just being a cool human being. And because of that, at the end, he said, what do you want to do? Now, he's no dummy. She's hanging around Video Village, which, by the way, is pretty boring. That's the place where the director and the major crew members watch these scenes being shot on monitors. So if you're not truly interested in acting or filmmaking, it's about as exciting as watching paint dry. So she's really interested in what's going on, and he opens it up to her. Why? Now, I know there are cynics amongst you screaming at me right now from your phone saying, dude, she was a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader cover girl. Come on. And sure, I'm guessing that didn't hurt, but he liked her. He wanted to help her out because she had a point of view and a brain in her head and other interests besides acting. And maybe I'm being really naive here, but I want to believe that Robert Altman would not make that offer if she approached him with her hat in her hand looking for a part in his next film. In fact, I don't think their interaction would have lasted more than a few seconds, let alone a few days. So that's my take. Be a decent, interesting human being, and you'll get further than you will if you ask everyone in a position of power for help the minute you meet them. Number two, I I hate to take up two takeaways on one person, but it really is interesting to me what eventually happened with Sarah and Robert Altman. So by the time he called me back last, I'll never forget, it was around, I think, March or April. And I just felt so intimidated. I just was like, oh my gosh, this man that I conversed with so easily once upon a time, he like, he's the godfather of film. Like, what do I say? I'm not good enough to talk to him. And the reason I mention this one is I had a similar situation with a guy named Bob Hawk. He's the guy credited with discovering Ed Burns and his first film, Brothers McMullen, back in the 90s. He saw me in a film, liked my performance. I invited him to a reading of a play I wrote. And after the reading, he said he loved it and he wanted to give me some notes. And I didn't call him back to get the notes for so long that when I eventually did, he said he'd forgotten what he wanted to tell me. And I always regretted it. I totally dropped the ball, and I don't know exactly why I did it, or why Sarah pulled away from Altman. It's the opposite of what most people think. When she realized she had more to gain, she actually torpedoed the relationship. Guilt? Fear of failure? Fear of success? I don't know. She's obviously done really well since then, but it just goes to show everyone stumbles, everyone missteps, so don't beat yourself up if you've made mistakes. Learn from them, but you're not alone. Number three. Now, there are so many great takeaways for me in this conversation, it's hard to pick three. So since you just heard the wisdom Sarah was dropping at the end of our conversation, tons of great things there. I'm going to dive back into something she said early on about her dad's darkness. I hated him for a long time because of it. But now as I've gotten older, you know, it's like, in a way, I use him a lot in my work. You know, he is my darkness. He is, uh, he is a part that really completes me, I think, as 
as a person, as an artist. Again, this is quintessential 10,000 no's. She took this terrible thing. I mean, it was hard to look in Sarah's eyes as she was telling me about her dad holding a gun to her 10-year-old head. Maybe I'm sheltered, but holy cow, that is intense. So to hear her then find not only forgiveness for her dad eventually, but almost gratitude for his darkness and what he put her through... And it's one of the great things I find as an actor, really any of you who are artists would agree, and I guess it could apply to any profession, but the great thing about art is that literally any experience, no matter how dark, can be flipped on its head if you view it from an artistic perspective. So the takeaway, as as hard as it may seem in the moment, any hardship or horror you experience can be used for good if you choose to use it for good like Sarah has. That is our episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Sarah Shahi, for just bringing it. So much gratitude for that. And I'm guessing all of you who listen feel the same. Go check out the links in the show notes if you want more information about Sarah. And please share this episode with your friends or take a screenshot of it. Post it to your social media. Talk about it next week when you're stuffing your face with turkey, watching the Cowboys playing the Bills. You know they're going to cut to a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. And that's when you're going to say, you know what? I just heard this great podcast, 10,000 Knows, with this actor, Sarah Shahi. Well, turns out she was their swimsuit cover girl, 99-2000. Boom. You want more stuffing? That line will get you more stuffing. Hell, that line will get you apple pie a la mode. Trust me. Anyway, share it if you liked it. Taking a few minutes to leave us an iTunes review is greatly appreciated. And most important, subscribe to 10,000 Knows wherever you listen so you don't miss any episodes when they come out every Friday. We've got some really good ones in the pipeline. If you like today's conversation with Sarah, check out the links in the show notes for these past conversations. Poopery founder, CEO, Susie Batiste, actually another Texas gal and a similar harrowing childhood that gave way to her now being on the short list for Forbes self-made female millionaires. Her company is worth about $500 million. No big deal. Actress Tony Torres, one of my very first interviews, I worked with her on Goliath season two. And she also just a crazy story of overcoming poverty and abuse, really inspiring on her way to being an actor. Or my only two-part interview, Melissa and Doug Toy Company co-founder Melissa Bernstein, another just wildly successful woman who, it turns out, battled depression her whole life, unbeknownst to people that were in her inner circle, including her family. Awesome woman. You can also scroll through 10,000knows.com to see which other episodes may speak to you when you're purchasing 10,000 Knows hats and t-shirts as Christmas gifts for your entire family, your company, strangers in the streets. Come on, guys, throw me a bone here. For announcements and promo videos, of who's next you can follow me on social media at maddie dell on instagram at matthew del negro on twitter facebook and linkedin you can email us at info at 10,000 nosecom if you want to be added to our mailing list or with questions feedback or guest suggestions thanks again for listening enjoy thanksgiving and we'll see you on black friday 